Let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of, of Luke, chapter 15. I was there two weeks ago. I should have preached this message last week, but hey, what are you going to do? You have to, you have to give it as it comes, right? I gave up on perfection early this morning, as I do every morning, before I roll out of bed. Oh, that's the end of perfection for today. Luke 15, verse 8. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? What woman, Christ asks, Christ asks. Any woman would do this. No woman says, oh, 10% of my holdings, no problem, so what? You lose a, a silver coin, you go and you search for it. It's a rhetorical question. Of course she searches for it. It's the most natural thing for her to search for it. She's going to be rather troubled until she finds it. Remember from two weeks ago, I shared with you how this is a parable and how Jesus' parables work. They work like allegories. Each person, each object, each event, each setting in the little story that Jesus tells is symbolic of something in the kingdom of heaven. He teaches us how to read these parables or understand them in other places in in the Gospels. I'm not going to go and cover that material a second time this morning. But this woman, in the story, she looks in the dark corners of her home where it would be difficult or impossible for her to see without a lamp. Now, what I shared with you two weeks ago is that Luke chapter 15 is three parts in one literary composition. Three parables, if you will. Okay, three parables, but three parables that are part of one composition. Sort of like one parable. The repetitions within the three parables of Luke chapter 15 may uh, lead us to conclude that Jesus is repeating the same message three times. The repeated elements are something is lost or someone, something or someone is found, and there is rejoicing in all three parts. And so that might make us think that Jesus is just saying the same message about the kingdom of God three times. But as I shared with you two weeks ago, it is actually not simply a repetition of the same ideas three times. In fact, each of the three parts of the presentation, I'll refer to them often as panels, like there are three panels in one piece of art. They illustrate different truths about the kingdom of God, and we might call all three of them the Trinitarian search. I know the first parable is usually called the parable of the lost sheep. I rather call it the parable of the good shepherd. 
The second one is usually called the parable of the lost coin. I rather call it the parable of the diligent woman. And the third parable is usually called the parable of the prodigal son, but I think it's really more about the father than it is the son, so I would call it the parable of the loving father. The good shepherd, the diligent woman, and the loving father. In panel one, about the parable of the good shepherd, we see the love and the courage and the strength of, the, of Jesus depicted by the shepherd who goes out and finds the lost sheep. He carries the lost sheep home on his shoulders. You can see it in verse 5. Well, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, carries us home to heaven. Are you going to climb there on your own? Is there some stairway you can climb? Is there some ladder you can climb? I'm telling you, not a chance. You can't get there on your own. Beg beg your pardon. Not really. You're too sinful, like I am. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We can't climb to a holy God because we're faulted. Maybe you think, my good outweighs my bad. Okay, I'm not going to fight with you on that. I'll say, sure, your good outweighs your bad. The problem is the bad. Your good doesn't get rid of your bad. And that bad will erect a barrier between you and God. Jesus Christ died on the cross to remove that barrier. That cross is our bridge to heaven. Hallelujah. He is strong. Jesus is strong. And he carries us on his shoulders to heaven. Hallelujah. In panel two, which I've called the parable of the diligent woman. The diligence of the church is portrayed. In the first parable, it's Jesus that is the center. In the second parable, it's the church. The woman is the church. But present also in the second is the lamp. Uh, it's, uh, It's called a candle in the King James Bible, but the Greek word actually refers to an oil lamp. The oil lamp is there, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. The coin is dead, like we were before we came to Christ. Were we going to get up and walk our way into heaven? No. We were as dead as a a silver coin. But our God went looking for us through his people. His people made a diligent search for us. In other words, somebody shared the gospel with me. How about you? Thank God someone shared the gospel with us. Went looking for a lost soul with the illumination and enabling of the Holy Spirit. Panel three, which I've called the parable of the loving father. We see the love of the Father and his outward vision. His, actually, his back is to his house. He's, look, he's scanning the horizon, looking for his lost, spiritually dead son to come over the horizon. I would say this three-panel work of godly, holy, literary art is perhaps the greatest piece of literature that's ever been written. I'm I'm an ex 
English teacher, and so I've read a handful of things, and I want to tell you, this is at the top for me. Praise the Lord. Well, I want to zero in on something that we didn't talk about two weeks ago, and that is that all three of the panels, or all three of the parables, all part of one response to these self-righteous Pharisees that were criticizing Jesus for sitting down at a table with sinners. You can see that if you look at the first few verses of the chapter. All three panels feature a place, a place of being lost. The wilderness in the first panel, the parable of the good shepherd, the dark corners of the house, In the second panel, the parable of the diligent woman. And a pigsty. In the third panel, the parable of the loving father. It is the place of change. It is not only the place of being lost. Praise God, it's also the place of being found. Amen? So let's talk about them one at a time. The first panel, or the parable of the good shepherd, the place of being lost and found is the wilderness. The wilderness represents the world that Jesus came to in search of us. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek that which was lost. He came to this world as social and human wilderness. Don't worry so much about the desert and the rocks and the, and the wide open spaces and the threatening animals. Jesus is talking about the, the world of people and the world uh, that is under the sway of the wicked one, the devil. A social and human wilderness. In his day, the society was oppressed by Rome. It was oppressed by a legalistic and power-obsessed religious hierarchy, and it was oppressed by poverty, widespread poverty. It was oppressed by disease, widespread disease. We think disease is widespread in our world. You know, we're, as a church, Living Word Church is getting older and older, and we're, we're having more and more prayer requests for people uh, battling their, their, this sickness and that sickness, it's, it's mounting up to be quite a pile of prayer requests, but I'll tell you, in the days of Jesus, sickness was many times more widespread than it is now. Suffering, that's the world that Jesus came to, oppressed by government, by tradition, by religion, by legalism, by power, by poverty, by disease. It was a dangerous world that our Lord came to, filled with the temptations of sin and and the flesh. Amen? A fearful place of danger, deception, and dysfunction. A dangerous place of sickness and sin and cynicism. You may find that those same descriptors fit the 21st century. In America, they fit our world, in our society, in our culture. But Christ is strong to save. 
to find the lost sheep in that wilderness and put that sheep on his shoulders and bring it home to the, to the fold. Amen? Let me move on to the next panel, but as I did last week, let me skip the second panel or the second, the parable of the diligent woman. Let me go to the third one and come back as I did two weeks ago. In the third panel, the place of being lost and then being found is a pigsty. Now remember, we can understand it literally, but in Jesus' way of taking parables, we're also supposed to understand a double meaning for it, a symbolic meaning. It symbolizes a spiritual place. And in fact, it symbolizes a spiritual place that all of us must come to. In uh, addiction programs where they try to uh, give therapy to people who have fallen to, uh, fallen, uh, to addictions, they often say, well, you got to hit bottom. you got to hit bottom before you can start to climb out and make your way. It's a painful place. I want to tell you that that pigsty, I don't believe, represents the, the place that, let's say, AA is talking about. An addiction uh, therapeutic program. Not, not exactly. It's a painful place. But it is also the place where we may be found. Praise God. Praise God for the pain. If that pain leads us out of being lost and dead, spiritually dead, it's a painful place, but it's the place where we can be found. The prodigal son's money and resources are spent and gone. That symbolizes the place that every human being must come to before he comes to Christ where our own devices, our own safety nets, our own devices, plans, hopes, and and strategies are used up. We have to hit the bottom. Not the bottom in terms of extreme degradation, like addiction and shameful sin and out-of-control wastefulness, deep in sin, a lot of sin, worse sin. Look, the person who commits the worst sin does not become the greatest saint. Like a formula. Example, someone who grows up in a Christian family must also hit the bottom. If you've grown up your whole life in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to hit the bottom that is symbolized by this pigsty. It does not mean that you have to hit the bottom in terms of shamefulness. 
You don't have to go out and discover every sin that this world has to offer. You don't have to commit every lie, immerse yourself in sex and crime and lies and drunkenness and broken promises and anger and greed and irresponsibility. You don't have to do a deep dive into all of these sins in order to hit the bottom. What you need to do is empty your pockets and say, I am empty of my own desires, my own plans, my own pride. You've got to hit the bottom of your pride. We all, to come home to the Lord, must hit the bottom of our pride wallet. Look in that pride wallet and say, there ain't nothing left. Hello, 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 hello. We must all empty the pride wallet and come to Christ. Remember, the story is symbolic. We don't all have to wallow in murky mud of an unclean animal. That's symbolic that we must all admit that we are empty without Christ. Utterly weak. Unable to do anything to help ourselves in this place. Now you can grow up in a Christian church. You can grow up in a Christian family. And you can come to that place where you realize, I'm weak. I need him. No sense in trying to stand in front of him with my pride. I'm stripped. I stand before him naked and needy. Unable to do anything to help myself. Leave behind our pride, our goals, our ambitions. Leave that foolish thought that we can blaze our own trail. Find our own happiness. Stop thinking. You know, I'm pretty smart. I know what I'm doing. I'm smart and I'm strong. I beat people at board games. I got good grades in school. I put my pants on forward every single day with the tag in the back. So I'm pretty sure that I can do just fine by myself. That's what you have to empty yourselves of. That's what you have to get to the bottom of it. You have to get to the bottom of that pride. You have to disown self-sufficiency. Stop thinking we're so smart. I, I turned to the Lord when I was 17 years old, and a lot of you might think, wow, 17, that's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty nice. You were so young. You hardly had a chance to go very far into sin, very deep into sin at that age. And I'll say, well, yeah, I guess. I never went to jail. I have a lot of friends that spent some time in jail. I don't look down at them for it. They've turned to Christ. A bunch of unbelieving adults thought I was a good kid. ha, <laughs> ha. Oh, weren't they fooled? That was not the point. Who I fooled was not the point. 
that somebody thought well of me was not the point. Maybe somebody gave me an award. That wasn't the point, because I will tell you, at the age of 17, like most 17-year-olds, I broke every one of the Ten Commandments. Come on. Everyone. Every one of the 10-year-olds in our church and in our school and in our families knows as much as they ever need to find out about lying, deception, anger, pride, selfishness, greed. So hitting bottom is not going so deep in the mud. It's more about admitting my plan for me stinks. Stinks like a pigsty. My plan for me, I don't want it. I don't want to embrace it. I don't want to think that highly of it. It's about admitting God knows best. I'm done trying to stuff my pockets with more. More pleasure, more fun, more interesting, more more exhilaration, more money, more stuff. I'm done trying to stuff my pockets. My pockets are empty before the Lord. My Father in heaven knows best. So I'm going to turn around now and appeal to his mercy. That's the bottom we have to reach. The Lord told Jeremiah to prophesy this message. This is in Jeremiah 13, 8. The Lord says, Say unto the king and to the queen. And I'll just do a little expansion on that. And to the princes and to the princesses. All you princesses out there. All you princes. Humble yourselves. Sit down. For your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. That's the bottom that we have to hit the bottom of pride. Humility before the Lord. All right, let's go on in the third panel to verse 25. And let's uh, think about the one person who is not in his father's house at the end. That other son. Not the, not the wasteful son, the, we call him the prodigal son who went out and wasted his father's inheritance. The other one. Verse 25, now his elder son was in the field, and as he came, drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. 
neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. I'll keep on reading, but I'm just tempted to say, oh, poor baby. Okay, I got it out. Verse 30, but as soon as thy son, this thy son was come, with, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. This is the so-called good son. But notice how ungenerous he is. He is as greedy, I want to say this, he's as greedy in his heart as his younger brother was for money. He's not so different than his brother after all. He's very greedy. He's upset about having to wait for his reward. It's like us when we become impatient. And I could say, any 10-year-old, whether he grows up in the church or he grows up in a sinful house, whether he grows up with Christian parents or unbelieving parents, any 10-year-old knows fully the experience of impatience. I think kids are pretty good at, at feeling and expressing impatience by about the age of, what do you think, young couples with kids? Two years old? Lower it, one. Lower it, nine months. Lower it. Nobody has to teach anybody about impatience. He's so ungenerous. He's greedy in his heart. He says in verse 29, now this is my paraphrase, you never let me kill one of your lambs and let me throw a party. He's pretty clear that the fatted calf is his father's. It's yours, one of your kids, in verse 29, right? He is dissatisfied. He hasn't hit bottom yet. He hasn't hit bottom. You know, the bottom that the younger son hit was very painful, but praise God, it turned out okay. This older son... Still got a hit bottom. He's still proud. I never did anything but what you told me to do, he says. Why does he point this out? Because he's proud. Like the Pharisees to whom Jesus is addressing this three-panel piece of art, these three parables. He's addressing those Pharisees who criticized him for eating with sinners. This elder son is the Pharisees. The proud, self-righteous, greedy Pharisees who would gather together and assassinate God's Messiah. The older son is concerned that the father is not fair. You're not fair. What a boring life 
I have led. Do you see how he has not hit bottom yet? At any age, whether you grow up in the church or in the house of sin, you can get angry with God. At any age. You could be a young person and get angry with God. You could be middle-aged. You could be elderly and get angry with God. I've talked to many, many people who are angry with God. They have their reasons and they think God is not fair. That's why this uh, story of the parable of the loving father is the story of us all, my brothers and sisters. We, that prodigal son is us all. That elder, self-righteous son, he's, he represents all of us. People get angry with God. They accuse God of being unfair. It is the human condition since Eve accusing God of withholding something good and it not being fair. Why can't I eat the fruit from that tree? You said we could eat the fruit from all the trees. It's that one that we're not allowed to eat from that irks me so. It's the human condition. This proud, self-righteous son will not enter the house. He cuts himself off from the father. Not through open rebellion, but through passive aggression. He is, he is a great case of passive aggression. He doesn't say, Dad, let's fight. That's what the younger son did. He says, Dad, I'm just not going to cooperate. I simply won't cooperate. Arms folded. I'm not praising the Lord. You guys are all in there praising the Lord. I'm not going to praise the Lord. Well, don't you love the Lord? Yeah, I love the Lord, but I'm not going to praise him. Don't you care about your brother? I love my brother. Don't even ask me that. I just, not going to be a part. He won't pray. It's like someone who won't praise the Lord, won't pray, won't listen, won't cave in, won't be happy about the same things that the godly are happy about. I'm not being happy about that. You can rejoice. You can be happy about that. You can, you can be all excited and joyful and singing about that thing there. I'm not happy about the same thing that you're happy about. Passive aggression. You say, what are you happy about? Going and gambling and hiring harlots and spending all your inheritance and Winding up in a pigsty? No, absolutely not. I will not have any of that stuff. I'll be a diligent, responsible son here on the farm with you. I am just not going to be happy about the things that you're happy about. I will decide for myself what I'm happy about. And it's not what you're happy about. Oh, I've seen... <laughs> I haven't seen that by the scores. I've seen that by the hundreds. Passive aggression. We have a handful this morning right here in the congregation. You can't tell me what to be happy about. Can the Lord? As, 
as bad off as the brother was who ran from the home, rebelled openly, wasted the substance until he hit bottom in a pigsty, is this brother perhaps, you decide, is he perhaps even worse? I know this, in the end, it's the younger brother who is openly rebellious who winds up inside the house, and it's the other son who's passive-aggressive who winds up outside the house. The father says something really important in verse 31. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. But it is not comforting to his son. It does not calm him. It doesn't end his anger. It doesn't cause the son to come into the house. Do you see what just happened? The second son has cut himself off from the father. Just as the first son did, he is running away from the father, but not by running to a far country, instead by running to a far-off psychological place. You're not communicating with me. And that's the way I want it. I don't want you to get through. It's sad. I suppose he went to bed that night under the same roof as his father and his brother. I imagine he didn't sleep in the barn, although I suppose that's possible. It doesn't matter if he slept that night under the same roof with his father and brother or not. We already know he was a long ways away from his father and his brother. His heart, wherever his body spent that night, his heart did not spend that night under the roof. That psychological and spiritual distance between an adolescent and his or her parents, his or her mentors, it's a common phenomenon. The father and son can't even talk. And here it is. Jesus is presenting this picture to the Pharisees that are accusing him of being a bad man for eating with sinners, for loving sinners. And the Pharisees cannot hear a word that the Heavenly Father is saying to them through Jesus. They brag about being the faithful few, but they're plotting to kill God's Son. Let's back up to the middle panel now, the parable of the diligent woman. Notice the woman uses the aid of a lamp. It must be dark. I'll review the symbolism in the second uh, parable here. The woman represents the local church. The house represents the city where the church is. The lamp represents the empowering of the Holy Spirit, including the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Keep your hand here in Luke 15. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Praise the Lord. I'd like to share this with you, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. This, this is a really important passage to us here at Living Word Church. This is, this is talking about a lot of the things that have started Living Word Church 50 years ago and sustained it all these decades. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
I'm reading in the NIV, I believe. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. We call these the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit distributes these gifts to believers in Christ as the Spirit wills. And these gifts are essential for the church to find lost souls and to lead lost souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be moved and helped by the illumination of the lamp. In other words, of the Holy Spirit. The lamp is the symbol for what this passage is talking about. The infilling, illuminating, empowering by the Holy Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Let's go back to the, uh, Luke 15 and the, and the parable of the diligent woman. She needs to find her lost coin, the help of a lamp. The same way as the local church needs the help of the Holy Spirit to find lost souls. Houses in the Bible days often had little natural light in them, only the light that might enter through a doorway, which oftentimes would have the door closed. The insides of houses were not very comfortable places. People didn't spend a lot of time inside if they didn't have to. Every open window a house might have presented a construction problem, a security problem to the house, a pest problem to the house. For these reasons, houses didn't have windows. I toured the house of Caesar Augustus, the first Caesar of the Roman Empire in Rome. His mansion has been uncovered, and it's there to view and explain. Well, I'll tell you, it didn't have windows. There is a mansion that has been uncovered in Jerusalem. You actually have to go in a, in a door and down a set of stairs to get to it. The, the um, waste products of, uh, of being conquered time after time have piled up and buried the Jerusalem of Jesus' day. This mansion is thought perhaps to be the mansion of the high priest at the time of Jesus. It dates to the time of Jesus, a 2,000-year-old mansion. You can look it up online on your own and see the diagrams of it. Guess what? No windows. Now, windows are high priority to us in our architecture in our modern days. We say, I want more windows. Let the sun in, the the, the beautiful natural light. Give me more windows. Well, of course, we have double and triple pane windows and insulated windows, and we 
chink around them with insulation and foam, and we trim them very well, and they, they open and close so nicely and smoothly, and they have insect screens on them. Do you think they had all that stuff in Jesus' day? So what they did was skip the window. Didn't they like natural light and the outdoors and fresh air? Of course they did. So they left their small rooms and went out into the courtyard. Their, their outdoor light was out in the courtyard, and courtyards were a very common architectural feature of houses in the day of Jesus. We even hear about people going up onto their roofs, like Peter went up onto the roof in order to relax, and, in order, and he got faint, and he had a great vision uh, given from the Lord up on the roof. That's where they would go for fresh air and light. They would go to the courtyard. They would go to the roof. The houses, even of the rich, didn't have windows. Why well, say all this? The lady didn't have a chance without a lamp. Same thing, saints. The church doesn't have a chance without the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Ghost in order to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, successful witnesses. Amen? Darkness. Now, I said the woman represents the church, the lamp represents the Holy Spirit, the house represents her city. What does the darkness represent? Well, I'll tell you, Roman cities where the church was born and expanded was a dark, dark world. Sex, alternate sexualities, sexual abuse, sexual slavery, harlotry, go on from sex, cruelty, power, greed, militarism, unbridled competition, pride. These were the features of the culture at the time of Jesus in the world where the church of Jesus Christ was born. Do you think it was dark? Do you think the church had to look and look for lost souls with the illumination of the Holy Spirit in such a dark environment? There was every type of gaming, every type of sexual excess, the flaunting of the flesh and wealth, killing for recreation in the arenas. Can you imagine killing for recreation? Killing to applause. There were altars, priesthoods, temples to hundreds of gods, idolatry everywhere, slavery of every brand, exploitation of women, destruction of babies. And the number one value of the Roman Empire was pride. It wasn't generosity. It wasn't mercy. It wasn't love. It was pride. It was beat the other guy. Come out on top. Show your superiority. In other words, the house was dark. The environment where the church was looking for lost souls was dark. The illumination of the Holy Spirit was very much needed. Many of you are watching the movie, The Jesus Revolution. Did I, did I say the title of the movie right? Jesus Revolution? I'm looking for a couple nods. Yeah, thank you. I haven't seen it yet. I hope to see it. 
It's about, but I know what it's about. It's about the Jesus movement that seemed to begin in California in the late 1960s and early 1970s with Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel. But you guys are going to the movie and watching the movie and you're getting amazed and you're saying, oh my gosh, that's our story. That's Living Word Church. That's like what happened here. It's the same thing all over again. See, movie makers thought it was happening in California. No, it's happening all over the United States. It was a wonderful move of the Holy Ghost. Amen? It was the lamp burning brightly in the darkness. Hallelujah! Churches were born. Thousands were born again. Thousands were baptized. Thousands, 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 thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands were baptized in the Holy Ghost as well as in water. The same thing was going on at the same time in central New York. But it wasn't like Southern California, central New York. It was going on in Ithaca. It was going on in Rochester. It was going on in Long Island. It was going on here and there. It's because the Holy Ghost decided to intervene in the history of the United States of America. Hallelujah! To intervene in our lives. A lot of you were there. A lot of you experienced it. A lot of you go to that movie, The Jesus Revolution, and you go, oh man, can I ever relate How many times did you cry during the course of the movie? I'm bringing my Kleenex. And I want to tell you, the Jesus Revolution in the late 60s and early 70s happened during one of the darkest times in American history. Like the church was born in one of the darkest times of human history and during the Roman Empire when morality was so twisted and ugly and devilish. There was distrust in the 1960s and and hate between the generations, between the young and between the old. There was a disputed war in Vietnam with pictures on the television, you know, live action films every night on the, on the evening news with Walter Cronkite and so on and so forth. So that the world would be able to see the suffering that was going on in the war. For the first time in human history, it was presented in that way. There was in our country the separation of black people from white people and the oppression of the black going on in spades, discrimination in a terrible and ugly way in this country. Ironically, Martin Luther King said the most segregated time in all of American life is Sunday mornings. Well, I want to tell you, I want God to do a new thing among us. And I want this church to be filled with every color, every nation, every kind, every race. Praise God. As long as your blood is red, you're welcome here. Amen? The same color blood as Jesus spilled on the cross. Come on. Segregations of the devil. But that's not all the darkness that was here. There was violent hate between the doves who wanted peace instead of burying communism and the hawks 
who turned the so-called military-industrial complex, named by others, I'm sure, besides Dwight, President Dwight Eisenhower, they turned that military-industrial complex into an idol, into a bale. There was a nuclear cloud over the world's head. There was the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were war protests. There were college kids burning down ROTC buildings. And there were National Guardsmen shooting down unarmed college kids. What a mess! What a time of darkness! Lynchings. High-profile assassinations. One after the another, uh, another. One more mysterious than another. Medgar Evers. President John Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Robert Kennedy, all in a five-year period. Unprecedented darkness in this country. Cults. Religious cults. Mass suicide of an American-born cult. Darkness. A drug and sex explosion. A deep dive into Eastern religions. The massacre of Israeli athletes in the Munich Olympics. A legal ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court that prayer and Bible reading should not be led in public schools. The Pentagon Papers, the Watergate Scandal, a president resigns, the Supreme Court rules abortion is a woman's constitutional right, only recently overthrown by the present Supreme Court. Was it a dark time? The 60s. The early 70s. But I want to tell you, A Jesus revolution was taking place in that dark time. A church of the Lord Jesus Christ was being born in the dark time of the Roman Empire. This church was born in that time. And you know what? In some ways, I think we were oblivious. We just sort of weren't paying attention. The political stuff, the demonstration stuff because we were all just so into Jesus at the time. That was a good way to be. It didn't hurt us to be so ignorant of the darkness around and to be so filled with Jesus. I don't know if perhaps that time of great darkness and meaninglessness and nihilism and confusion perhaps even led broken hearts to begin to seek Jesus. I know this, though. The diligent lady found her coin with the illumination of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. The darkness did not stop Jesus Christ. The preachers didn't cop cop out and say, it's just too dark. I hate the dark. There are at least 150-something verses in the Bible that contrast spiritual light and spiritual darkness. The Lord is always on the side of light. Amen? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Then he told the church, you're the light of the world. I can't pick from the 152 verses. Would I pick this one? 
Yes, this is a, this is a bit of a trick. Ephesians 5.8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children in the light. How could I pick that one to read to you? John 12.46, I'm come a light into this world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Should I read that one out of the 152? How many can I read you? So I'm choosing this one, Acts 26.13. If you will go there with me, we'll close out the morning in this passage. Acts 26, 13. It's about a man's experience. It's about a man's testimony. He's testifying to a king. He says, About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's, it's quite a more complete account of what Paul heard from the Lord than, than what we see earlier in the book of Acts. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with this thought. We hate the darkness, and we hate the things that are happening in our country and in our world. But I want to ask you to beware of something, that we can complain about the darkness and despise it, and look down at it and think critically of our setting, our nation, our culture, and find it all to be a very distasteful, ugly, and uncomfortable spreading of darkness. And what can happen is we can actually wind up despising and hating people. I know the old saying, hate the sin, not the sinner. That is very difficult to do. And if we nurture our hate of the darkness, we run the risk of becoming like the Pharisees who wanted nothing to do with the sinners rather than like the diligent woman who swept through the darkness and used her lamp in order to find that which was lost. We need to be very careful that we don't just turn each other so off about the difficult age that we're living in without realizing, 
I know some of my older brethren are not, are, may not be happy with me right now because you really hate the things that are going on in our country. And you remember a better time and, and, and the deterioration, the moral deterioration going on in our country and the fighting and the greed and the spread of immorality and is, is crazy to you and it's bothering you. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, let's not obsess over that. Let's look for the lost coin. Let's be the diligent woman with the illumination of the Holy Ghost who finds that lost coin and can rejoice together with the people of God over a soul that is found. I have made a determination not to just hammer and hammer and hammer the moral deterioration that's going on around us and instead to hammer and hammer our love for the lost soul. Love that lost soul. Find that lost soul. Lead that lost soul to Christ. Better off being blind to the darkness and going about with the light. Think of the parable. The light is a little lamp, a little lamp. I mean, you have to get your face right down next to it and you have to look like this and you have to look under the corners. That's what we need to do. Be right there. Our faces right by the Holy Ghost. Filled with the Holy Ghost and his help. Now before we dismiss this morning, is there anybody here that said, I've got to turn to Jesus Christ. I I want that. I want to turn to the Lord. I want to be saved. I want to surrender. I've hit bottom. I have hit bottom. I I don't have a prison sentence over my head. That's not what I mean. I can't make it on my own. I've got to have the help of God. I've got to be saved by him, not by me. The singers will come up. We're not going to wait a long time. We're going to dismiss the meeting quickly. The singers will come up. How about if you come up too? Just like they did for years and years at the Billy Graham Crusades. Come on down from wherever you are in the room and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Come on now. The front is open. Y'all can come.